Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Have you ever thought about woke-proofing your life? I was told about a new book by Teresa Mull called Woke-Proof Your Wi- Your Life, Not Your Wife, Your Life, a handbook on escaping modern political madness and shielding yourself and your family by living a more self-sufficient and fulfilling life. Woke-proof your life. What is wokeness? Do we need to woke-proof our lives? I think that anyone who's really thought about that word, maybe it's become a bit of a trigger word for you. Uh, we'll talk about what can be done, why it's important, why you need to separate yourself for God. And I think that's what this entire book is all about. I love what Teresa Mull uh, wrote, giving some guidelines to help to recreate what my parents, I'll share with you, created in terms of how they wanted to raise their family. And now I'm doing the same thing. So we'll talk a little bit about that in just a little bit. We're also going to talk about why you shouldn't compromise. This is at the heart of the section of Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body that we're in as we're working through this series. And we're also taking your questions. If you have a question today, the number is 888-914-9149. Joining me now is Teresa Mole. Again, she's the author of the book, Woke Proof Your Life. And it was really making me think as I was reading the book how we're called to be holy. And I remember when I was going through high school and dealing with that turmoil that so many teenage girls experience with friendships. My mom was really challenging me as I was suffering through that awful phase in life and feeling very separated from the friendships that I had made and isolated. She said, well, to be a holy means to be set apart. We're God's portion. And so that means that there are things we have to do where we draw the line in the sand and separate ourselves from the ways of the world. And I think this is what this book is all about. St. Paul discusses how we shouldn't conform ourselves to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We often talk about that from the perspective of education, but not often enough from the perspective of what we allow ourselves to see, hear, think about the news and content we receive. So to talk about what wokeness is and how to woke-proof your life is Teresa Mull here on Trending. Teresa, welcome to Trending. What does it mean to be woke? Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, Wokeness, the definition that I give in the book, is a socio-political ideology characterized by the manipulation of noble goals um, for the control and destruction of society. So what we see in wokeness is a kind of like political correctness on steroids a little bit, but um, they're using kind of vague terms like woke itself is a vague term, but um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, all these sorts of concepts that are in themselves very good and very positive, but the way that they're bringing about their agenda, the left-wing um, woke mastermind, is is not a positive thing at all. They are they're controlling us, they are destroying families, they're alienating people, they're um, contributing to our mental health crisis here in our country. So um, we need to get away from the chaos and the 
the division and get back on track to where we view mm-hmm. our neighbors and one another as as neighbors and as people we care about rather than as people that we can that we're pitted against. We're going to talk about practical things that you can do, because when I looked at your book, I saw the title. Uh, well, it's true. We do kind of need to woke proof our lives. What does that even mean, though? And again, you say how we separate ourselves, but also how we engage with people. And I love that you give a lot of concrete examples in this book. It's interesting because I was pondering my upbringing and I grew up in a very small mountain town, mountain community in Southern California. I got the best of both worlds. I will, I will gloat just a little bit, a couple hours away from the beach, LA, Orange County, San Diego. We had the mountains, we had the ocean, we had the desert, everything nearby. However, we lived in that small, beautiful town. And in that town in Southern California, we were away from urban life. We were outdoors all of the time. And eventually my parents ended up homeschooling myself and for a time, some of my younger siblings. And this is what I long for for my children, to have that layer of protection. We were marking the anniversary of 9-11 this week, 22 years later. And the thing that really struck me, and I talked about it during the show this week, I hope you'll go and listen, is how differently we consume news today. And I was thinking about how we consume things today uh, without the lens, at least as children, without the lens of the parent, because kids are perpetually walking around with handheld devices. And so when I saw what happened at 9-11, I said, hey, mom, I see something's on the news that's happening. We didn't even watch the news growing up. I was probably on my way to the Disney Channel or whatever I was trying to watch that morning, like 6 a.m. in the morning on the West Coast when this happened. And thinking about that, there was that protection. There was that protection from the ideologies of the world that are so impressionable upon young people. If gender ideology was a thing when I was growing up, I wouldn't have been exposed to it because there was that protection, that draw away from urban life, that sheltering of being homeschooled. And I still had a social life and friends and interacted with other people. But I experienced things through the lens of my family. And you talk a lot about that in your book. So let's dive in a little bit. Why should people woke proof their lives? Well, um, you know, the point of life we know is to get to heaven and to, um, you know, we're all put on this earth for a purpose. And I encourage people maybe um, who haven't thought about this in a while or have maybe have never thought about it, maybe you're not religious, to think about why you're here and what you're doing. You know, so much of our existence is, or of modern society is about convenience and comfort. And we're really not made for that. And I think our pursuit of that as an end goal uh, leads to so much hedonism and leads to so much misery, which is really what wokeness encourages. So we don't, we were made for more than that. We know that. And whenever we get to the end of our lives, we want to look back and say, did I do everything I could to win over hearts and souls and to serve our Lord as I was called to do? And if you're not, if you feel that you are angry all the time, that you're constantly bickering with I don't know, people on the internet or just you're in a bad mood and you don't have a sense of peace and purpose in your soul, that is why you need to woke-proof your life because you're allowing this modern culture to consume you and take over um, your higher your higher end. So um, that's the basis of the book, you know, getting back to a more civil society and one that is happier, healthier, and holier. 
woke proofing your life isn't anything new. We just use this term that is new today. This idea of being woke, it's the same idea of protecting negative information, negative people. You it has changed, but what we need how and when we consume news, uh, to you name it. And I think that my question is, what are those basics? Like, what do we need to do to help to maintain that sense of sanity, happiness, holiness, as you say in your book? I ask people to be really guarded of their senses, of what you see, what you hear, what you absorb. You know, I give the example of you wouldn't open your mouth and let a random stranger put any sort of substance into your body, but that's exactly what we're doing. And we are in many cases allowing our children to do whenever we're just doing what you described as, um, you know, just kind of rampantly absorbing social media or mainstream media or whatever pops up on our phone. You know, we have no idea what's going to be there, but yet we turn time and time again to these screens. And so I encourage people to be guarded of how they're spending their time. Um, you know, time is precious and we're going to be held to account for how we spend our time here on earth. And um, so ask yourself if you're using your TV or your phone or your computer or whatever it is as a resource or a recourse. You know, are you using it to learn something, to pray better, to join a community that makes you uh, holier? Or are you just using it to fill time? Are you entertaining? yourself and are you allowing it to take you to distract you from Christ and also to distract you from using your your talents and interacting with other humans you know um, I see so many people and I've you know been guilty of this myself where you have a few minutes to spare and the first thing you do is just whip out your phone and kind of mindlessly scroll through it because you have some downtime and this is time that we could be using in reading and learning a new hobby and learning a new skill gardening, taking a walk in nature, contemplating, praying, talking to the person sitting next to us. So um, just set boundaries on yourself, set a timer if you need to do that, uh, Just and pray about it, of course. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you and, and give you some self, self-control, some restraint, and I guarantee that you'll be happier and you'll feel way less stressed if you spend less time on your screen and more time in God's beautiful world. So decreasing screen time is key. It's something I love and I'm a huge advocate of. And I'm constantly talking about needing to keep myself accountable for this because our technology is there to have us be users of it. It's designed for us to be on it 24-7. We need to look at it as tools. And so doing concrete things to actually create that barrier is important. And we've discussed that regularly here on Trending. We'll link to a couple episodes on how to use your phone less, decrease screen time. So keep an eye out for that in the episode notes if you're interested in decreasing that mindless exposure to everything from news to just scrolling mindlessly to video games, you name it. Let's talk about something that you mentioned in your book, which I thought was really key, and that was homeschooling. I love one of the interviews you did from a mom who'd homeschooled her children, and it reminded me much of what I was discussing earlier this week. With 9-11, it dawned on me 22 years ago, I processed 9-11 as a nine-year-old through the eyes and guidance of 
my mom. You know, I was there side by side. Everything I heard because I was homeschooled came through that lens, a very scary and traumatic event for some people. I was actually talking to a teacher who called in the other day and she shared that she was teaching first graders, like what, six, seven-year-olds? And for the next year after that in school, every single day, every photo that they were drawing was a photo of a birthday cake and a plane crashing into it. It was a very traumatizing experience. There was this fear that war was coming to American soil and that for a child, their most joyful events would be damage. And so bringing this back to your book, uh, you talk about how a lot of people, there's this massive turn toward homeschooling today. I think you cited, is it correct, about one in 10 young people are homeschooled now? Is that correct? Yes, that sounds that sounds accurate. And I just saw another headline that this year is the biggest year for school choice ever. So beyond homeschooling, um, also people just seeking alternative education in the form of charter schools and private schools and all sorts of um, environments that are, are going to be less likely to be woke. So it's really encouraging to see parents take an active interest in their children's education mm-hmm. and try to get them away from these woke forces that are so rampant generally in public schools. I mean, it's everywhere, but, you know, it seems to be kind of concentrated there from what we see at these some of these school board meetings. Mm-hmm. Now, a story in your book that you told was that of a woman who homeschooled five of her children. They're all adults now. And one of her children, she didn't homeschool, and she noticed a stark contrast in terms of how her daughter viewed the world, the conversations they were able to have, because her children whom she homeschooled they experienced life together. She was able to be there side by side with them. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between how her daughter who wasn't homeschooled and her other children were in terms of how they were raised and the influence that had on them? Yes, that was such a poignant story that woman told. So she sent her oldest child to public school and then realized that she wanted to homeschool her younger kids and she did. And she said that being around her younger children all day, every day, she knew every single thing about them. She was there, as you spoke about, to be able to help them process uh, difficult things that would happen, you know, funerals, um, just items that they would come across in the news. She was there to kind of filter that and explain it to them and give her her point of view, her traditional Christian values. But her eldest daughter, who was gone for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you know, you send your kid off on a bus in the morning and then they just come back at the end of the day. And that's so much time that you're not around your own child. So she said that whenever her daughter got older up into her high school years, they they weren't as close. And now that she's an adult, they um, her daughter is pretty liberal and her mother doesn't feel like she has very much in common with her. Whereas with the kids that she homeschooled, she's very close to. They've been through everything together and they continue to, to have that really tight bond. So um, she, she feels kind of like her eldest daughter is almost a stranger to her because she didn't spend very much time with her just by sending her off to a, to a school where she wasn't around. Teresa Moles, author of Woke Proof Your Life. Now, you're calling for people to make a physical move. Why are you encouraging people to move to different areas? Can you explain this a little bit in the connection to Woke Proofing Your Life? Yes. Um, I ask people to look at how they're spending their money. There is a section also on conscientious consuming and ways to boycott and spend your money on with corporations and companies that um, are more aligned with your with your beliefs. But this also goes 
to your the tax base as well. You know, if you're living somewhere that's very progressive, very woke, very radical left wing, you could very well be funding through your tax dollars all those sorts of uh, woke agenda items that that is contrary to what you believe and what you want your society to look like. So I ask people to to pray and to ask the Holy Spirit to guide them if they feel that they're being called to live elsewhere to do that and to explore that. I also have some advice for um, ways to make that transition a little bit easier. Um, and also just the, the fact that, you know, living in a community of people who are like-minded, uh, it's it's been proven, you know, if you want to quit smoking, you hang out with a bunch of people who don't smoke, it's going to make it easier for you to quit smoking. Same thing with eating healthily or any other sort of habit you want to establish. So if you want to improve your prayer life, if you want to... Um, pr- uh, to be, you know, just just more aligned with your Christian values, living among other people who are living that way is going to help you big time and, um, and vice versa. So living among people who agree with you and want to encourage you and help you get to heaven is, is definitely a positive. So I ask people to to look into that if they can and to and to move or to, to vote with their feet and to vote with their wallets as much as they're able to. And I know there are different philosophies, and you and I might differ on leaving somewhere because of the ideologies that are being pushed through the government. There's much to be said. You know, my whole family, I've been born and raised in Southern California. My family was here since before California became California. We have deep roots here. And we left for a couple of years. And, you know, we had been talking and thinking about it. We thought it was something that was necessary with the idea at the time of having children. And then sure enough, it happened to be we had our first baby. And a couple weeks later, my husband received a job offer and we headed and packed up to the Midwest and came back this last year. And here I am in Southern California, right? This is a battle state. And I get it. I get some people who are leaving, especially if you found yourself here and you don't actually have roots. You don't have family. You don't have a strong community. I highly recommend recommend go back to where it costs less and you have family in a community or a good community that you could build an area that you've heard of i know a lot of people today seem to be traveling to Coeur d'Alene and tennessee and parts of florida and pockets of communities but there are a lot of people who like myself are called to stay where they're at or for reasons having to do with job you name it they're there i love what you talk about teresa in your book with regard to getting back to the roots of forming a community with the people around you can you talk a little more about that yes i think obviously um moving is kind of the most obvious um, option for seeking such a community. But as you described, you know, people have their reasons for staying somewhere, even if it is woke, or maybe they just don't want to move somewhere else. They're happy where they are. Maybe they have family or, or what have you. But um, there are ways, of course, to woke-proof your life wherever you are and whatever your situation allows. And I, um, I would advise people to build to cultivate a community where they are first and foremost through a church. If if you're a religious person, you know, that's pretty, pretty much, I would say the easiest way to do that because you're already, um, 
surrounded by people who are, are aligned with the same beliefs that you have. And um, from there, you know, you, you create a network that helps you spiritually um, and even in practical ways. You know, you have people you trust that you can call on if you need, you know, a ride to the airport, you need a babysitter in a pinch, you, you need somebody to help you move a couch, whatever it is. You know, it's these beautiful kind of small town familial ties that we make whenever we put ourselves out there and we seek to be part of a community and to build one ourselves. And if, if your church community, um, if you aren't part of that, you can, you know, I, I encourage people to, once you put down your phone and you have all that free time because you're not on your screen anymore, uh, pick up a hobby or volunteer at a, at a worthwhile charity or organization where you live and you'll be sure to make friends uh, that way. And that's another way that you can build your community. And, and sometimes you can, if, if there's not a club around that you, you're, um, feel called to join, you can, of course, start your own or um, just make it a point to reach out to your friends and your family that maybe you haven't spoken to a while, in a while and, and make it a point to be a social person and, and fill your soul with that kind, kind of uh, um, a fellowship. So. I think it goes back to, you know, frequenting the same places that you're shopping at locally. I'm all about shopping local, supporting local businesses, and getting to know the person who is checking uh, checking out your groceries, the person who is your butcher, like actually taking the time to do that. I think that that is a really key. I, I love where you talked about inviting over the neighbors, actually getting to know them. You know, my neighbors recently had a baby. We had a weird event with someone kind of coming up to the house in the middle of the night, and lo and behold, they had left their garage door open next door and we had called the police because it was a really funky situation while the police were searching out our house they said oh is your neighbor's garage door normally open we said no it's not usually open and to our horror we felt so bad for them as the police actually entered into the home because they were concerned something was wrong thank god nothing was but the police went walking through the house and woke up the family it woke up the mother-in-law who was there helping with a newborn baby saying don't worry it's us it's the police uh, but it was one of those moments where i think we were mutually grateful everything was was fine but that we were watching out for each other we actually know our neighbors names uh, we have a dialogue with them there's this community watch and yes that still exists in places in southern california and others but what you're talking about is key is getting back to the roots of actually knowing your neighbors and being able to build a community sometimes i think that that does have to happen with people we don't always agree with and i think that's good if that's possible but i love what you say too of going to those pockets of areas where there's safety and there is that flourishing of relationships and faith uh, you talk also about maintaining local traditions which i love coming from a small town i know you came from a small town as well Teresa. talk to me a little bit about why maintaining those local traditions from the tree trimmings to the halloween events are important to you Yes, it's so important to keep those things alive. You know, those are the, the types of things that sustain you for your whole life. Um, you know, I, I still make it a point to go to those events that I loved whenever I was a child because they fill you with uh, with a sense of love and um, kind of a, a foretaste of heaven, I would say, where we're all together kind of in a communion of saints in our little way here, especially if you're celebrating something like Christmas or Easter, a religious holiday that um, really brings together people's souls and and just that feeling of generosity and goodwill toward one another, which can so easily be lost in in this world that is 
trying to pit us against one another. And there's so much alienation and division, which is, I think is what wokeness is all about. And um, yeah, of course, you know, if you disagree with someone, if somebody says something that's, that's woke, um, you know, you don't count that person off automatically. You, you pray for them and you try to try to show them love and, and grace. But the beauty about these sorts of events is that they're so non-political, you know, that's what I love about hobbies and volunteer opportunities also is that, you're there hanging out with someone and enjoying the moment. You're enjoying the Christmas celebration and how good the cocoa is or, or the, the choir that's singing or all these things that are so outside of the realm of our socio-political struggles. And we remember that we have a lot more in common than we don't. And that, yes, um, you know, we have, we have our disagreements, but we're able to be civil about them. And there's so many opportunities where we don't have to really discuss those things at all. We're just there to love one another and enjoy each other's company. Teresa, what do you think about this return to home setting? I'm seeing it as a major trend in the Catholic communities. I love it. We want to get chickens. We want to live off the land to the best of our ability. And I think it's good. What are your thoughts and why do you think the draw is so strong for people, especially in the Catholic community? I'm a really big fan of it. Um, I do caution people. I don't want woke proofing to, to advocate for really putting our heads in the sand and hiding from the world. Of course, there's a time and a place for um, kind of removing ourselves and retreating, but obviously not everybody is called to such a life. And um, we still are called to be beacons of, of light and to go forth and proclaim the gospel. So we're not hiding from the woke world in any way, but we are building up our own um, defenses, so to speak, so that wokeness is less likely to make a dent and to enter our, our homes. So I think uh, so many Catholics and Christians in general are, um, you know, they see the craziness that's happening in the world and they don't, they don't want to contribute to it. They want to be self-sufficient. They want to enjoy creation and to partake in it. And the crazier the world gets and the more that you you throw yourself into the arms and mercy of God and ask him to help you take care of you, um, then you can take care of yourself as well. And there's so much beauty. I'm a, I'm a big advocate of gardening and just partaking in growing something. I encourage people always to be growing something, whether that's a garden, a homestead, a family, um, a hobby, a skill, a talent, a relationship with somebody, you know, just, just always be, be an, open to being an instrument of God and the homesteading movement, I think is a really beautiful, pretty, um, you know, amazing way to, to be connected to so much of God's beauty um, in a really big and powerful way. And then, of course, that's an, a, a nice way to, to make sure that you're not funding wokeness if you're doing so much yourself and then you have harmony of the seasons and your experience mm-hmm. in nature and you can really do it together as a family. It just it has right. so much going for it. Teresa, thank you for joining us. If you've woke-proofed your life, maybe you have transitioned to homeschooling, maybe you've decided to start homesteading, maybe you're trying really hard to get to know your neighbors, whatever it might be, I'd love to hear from you and how you've made a transition. It's made you happier, healthier, holier. Check out Teresa Mull, her books, Woke-Proof Your Wife, Your Life, not your wife, Woke-Proof Your Life. We are posting a link to it on social media along with where you can find Teresa in her writings as well. I'll be right back here on Trending. We'll talk about why you shouldn't compromise. Share with you an interesting story and take your questions. Number is 888-914-9149. 
saw, what's trending. Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. If you have a question, let me know. The number is 888-914-9149. We had a few questions come in about confession and what do you do when you have some risque details and you do or don't want to share them and maybe the priest is asking for more information. What do you do? What's the difference between context and scandalizing your priest? We'll talk about that and much more here on Trending. But it's the feast day of St. John Chrysostom, and I love St. John Chrysostom, so I couldn't not mention him. He is known uh, for being an incredible homilist, a great preacher, and having a golden tongue. He's one of the early church fathers. In fact, a few years ago, I did an entire episode on how to choose wife. If you were single— if you know someone who is single or a gentleman, you just want to spruce up on why you married your wife to begin with, or ladies, you are wondering who you should marry, I'll tell you what to do. How to pick a wife with St. John Chrysostom, or better yet, how to know the right guy to marry if you're a lady. Uh, it's a great episode, and it is, I think, a key to take away to not just discerning marriage, but knowing who to marry. But here's my question for you. Do you pray? Why should you pray more? St. John Chrysostom actually has quite a bit to say about prayer. And I want to pull just one quote of his to talk about why you need to pray more because it makes you joyful. And this is what he sees so keenly. He says, prayer is a place of refuge for every worry, a foundation for cheerfulness, a source of constant happiness a protection against sadness. This is a great quote. So just to repeat, prayer is a place of refuge for every worry, a foundation for cheerfulness, a source of constant happiness and protection against sadness. Who doesn't want to be cheerful, happy, and protected against sadness? This, I think, is one of those things that people really, unless you pray and have a consistent prayer life, you just don't get it. And what St. John Chrysostom is saying isn't, he's not presenting happiness according to world's, worldly standards. Happiness according to worldly standards is how I feel. And if I don't feel happy, then I'm not happy. Versus joy is what St. John Chrysostom is really talking about. That underlining, abiding sense of peace and joy that's rooted in God, that is self-confident, that is holy, that without God, you really don't have it because it's one of the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. Joy, if you look at the word joy in Greek and the word grace in Greek, they're very similar. And that's for a reason, because the Holy Spirit fills us with the life of grace that allows us to live out the virtues. And the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit include that great gift of joy. In Matthew chapter 5, we read in the Sermon on the Mount about all of those things that seemingly seem rather sad, but Jesus calls them blessed in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the sorrowful. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the persecuted. Uh, we go on and on in the Beatitudes, and they seem so countercultural. Yet God is pointing to all these people who at the end of the day look at the world and look at it through the eyes of God, seeking virtuously to desire Him and that separation from those things uh, that could make them feel popular or make them feel happy. The Beatitudes in many respects are all about getting over our feelings 
and instead of feeling virtuously with God, looking at the world through the lens of God. And so if you want to be happy, St. John Chrysostom is saying you need joy. And although he's not expressing the difference between happiness and joy, what he's saying is prayer is a place of refuge for every worry. It's a foundation for cheerfulness, a source of constant happiness, and a protection against sadness. So if you want to be happy, here are three things to do to start praying more. Number one, start and end your day on your knees in prayer. Literally, get out of bed and kneel. For me, it's often because the kids are already dragging me around right now. um, It's a brief kneel at the beginning of the day, a pause, even if they're hooting and hollering or whatever is going on, it's a brief pause to begin my day, even if it's a moment in prayer. If you can longer, fabulous, do that. And at the end of the day, usually no one can take your time at the end of the day, end the day in prayer. Take the time to make that prayer. prayer. And with that, the second thing to do to start praying more so that you can be happy is commit to an hour of adoration a week. I know it's not easy. I'm still trying to make this happen. I thought it was going to happen on Wednesday nights after putting the girls to bed and then their bedtime kind of changes. And But really making that commitment. We only do what we make time for. So do it. Don't hesitate. I miss the days before I had children And then I was able to dedicate, I chose to dedicate an hour a day in adoration. You can do that too. If you have the time, if you don't have children, your children are older, maybe you're single, dedicate more time, but make that commitment now of an hour a week in adoration. There are many churches that have perpetual adoration. Just find one near you and sign up. That's a great way to stay committed because they expect you to make sure that Jesus is not left alone because there always has to be someone there with Jesus when the Blessed Sacrament, the body of Christ, is exposed. Number three, if you want to be happy, Go to confession monthly. That's the bare minimum. So that's how you need to increase your prayer life. One, starting on the day on your knees. Two, one hour of adoration a week. Make that commitment. And number three, go to confession at least, bare minimum, one time a month. And I was thinking about this earlier. We had a talk from Dave Durant. He's been here on Relevant Radio a number of times. And he last week, listening to a talk of his, he was talking about the key to success. And he says, the key to success is doing what you don't feel like doing. We don't always feel like praying. We don't always feel like going to confession or sitting for an hour in adoration and continuously trying to keep our attention. But this is what we are called to do, that through fidelity to Christ, and with that comes prayer, we'll be happy because God made the blueprint for life. Let's talk a little bit about the Theology of the Body series here on Trending. Um, I think that if we're to summarize these couple of chapters of Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body, it's all about not compromising. So we're still walking through part of the Sermon on the Mount, and right now, specifically, Pope St. John Paul II is talking about when Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? Well, it's the fifth commandment, essentially. But what did it mean to the people of Israel at the time of Christ who are hearing this? They viewed it in many respects in a very legalistic way. But it's not just about sexuality. It's about much more. It's about not compromising. So legalistically, at that time, they viewed it as don't take another person's wife. 
But at the same time, they had this sense of institutionalized polygamy and taking concubines. So the whole idea was just don't take someone else's property. So if someone's unmarried, you can make her your concubine. You can make her your second wife. But if she belongs to someone else, well, that's off limits. And that's when the sin occurs. In fact, Pope St. John Paul II says that while combating sin at the same time, It contained in itself the social structure of sin. In fact, it protected and legalized sin. So Pope St. John Paul II is saying at the time of Christ, people who were trying to live out the law of God made it into something that they wanted to interpret on their own. And so Jesus Christ is saying, don't commit adultery, period. Not just that. Don't even lust after someone. That's what we've been walking through this last week. This is relevant for each of us because we love, I love to interpret laws and morality according to how I think or how I want it to be interpreted. In In the midst of my fallen human nature, I miss the mark with the interpretation of a law. That's what it is to sin. We miss the mark. And that's why it's important when we have a moral guiding post and the Ten Commandments and the biblical truths, especially that Jesus Christ presented, that we ask what God intends, not what our frail perspective is. It's so important. The way we do that, the way we come to understand what the church teaches, what we should hold as our guide, our sense of responsibility, our moral framework We understand that through knowing what the Ten Commandments are, knowing what God has called us to, reading our Bibles to understand the interpretation, reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, because it's through the magisterium, through the interpretation, through the fidelity, and through the faithfulness of the Church through 2,000 years now that we have how we are to understand the moral guideposts of our Catholic faith. And if you're still confused, look at how the saints lived it out. Look at how they struggled to live it out and then came into conformity with Christ. And finally, if you are living a sacramental life, if you're receiving our Lord Jesus Christ worthily in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, and going to confession humbly, you will work on aligning yourself with God in His guiding posts. And so that's why this part of the theology of the body isn't just about adultery. It's all about not compromising. And I love this commentary of Pope St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body on that commandment, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Because what Pope St. John Paul II is showing is that at the time of Christ, the people didn't get it. The The Pharisees, the people who upheld the law, just didn't understand. So just a little side note, because I think it's important, Pope St. John Paul II takes a moment here when talking about adultery to specifically address sexual deviation. And yet again, it's this idea of don't compromise. Even while the Pharisees and the people at the time of Christ and before Christ were trying to interpret this do not commit adultery in terms of just don't take someone else's spouse. However, you can have multiple wives and concubines as long as they're not married to someone else. What Pope St. John Paul II points to is that even when there was that looseness with sexual morality, it was very clear that Sexual relations that were deviant, such as specifically homosexuality, bestiality, and contraception, were off the table for the Israelites. And I think that's really important. In fact, these things were punishable by death in the Old Testament. Homosexual behavior, bestiality, and contraception. Not, And I think it's important that we distinguish not someone who has a disordered attraction, but someone who lives out that attraction. And so that deviance 
is very clearly upheld throughout all of the Old Testament. And again, it was punishable according to the Old Testament by death. And that was clearly defined and understood, even though they didn't quite get it right with taking multiple spouses. And this is why Jesus Christ appeals in the series of Theology of the Body that we've been discussing, that when he's first approached about sexuality and divorce, Jesus says, what was it from the beginning? From the beginning, God intended them male and female. The two become one flesh, man and woman. This is the answer, answer to the gender crisis. This is the answer to all of these ideologies that we're hearing about today. And so the Old Testament was very clear as well about the procreative dimension of marriage. That procreation, that is having kids, was the end of marriage. And I love that Pope St. John Paul II adds this one or two paragraph dimension in this area of talking about not compromising and adultery. In other words, know the mission of marriage, understand the goal and the intention that all of human history has understood that children were the end goal and mission of marriage. Let's talk about adultery from the perspective of the prophets, the prophets that came before Jesus, specifically, for example, Isaiah, Hosea, and Ezekiel. Pope St. John Paul II is saying when Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery, he's also pointing to us understanding salvation history and how the prophets use adultery as a analogy for idolatry. So adultery is an analogy for idolatry. So for example, throughout salvation history, we read that God is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. In the New Testament, we understand it as Jesus Christ is the groom and we, the church, are his bride. And so adultery was an analogy seen all over the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, of understanding that when we turn our back on God and we're not faithful to him, we're committing adultery. We're being unfaithful. Yet the whole time, God is being faithful and steadfast. We know, we read in sacred scripture, God will never abandon his people. We may abandon him, but he doesn't abandon us. And so yet again, this theme in this section of Theology of the Body is don't compromise, stay faithful. This is why as we celebrate St. John Chrysostom's feast day, I was just talking about how he as his golden tongue, this person who is incredibly gifted with, by the Holy Spirit in preaching, talks about how to be happy and how it's done through prayer. And that's why I gave you those three key things to do to start praying more so you can be happy. If you didn't catch them, listen to the podcast relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your podcast we are there but the relevant radio app is free and on demand where you can listen and share an episode of trending okay adultery as idolatry is key in this whole conversation because we turn what we worship into idols and so adultery as idolatry understood is understanding that we worship other gods for People of the Old Testament and in pagan lands, it's literally idols. We see this still today, though, with Buddhism and Hinduism and the connection to yoga. I did go there. If you're wondering about that, we'll post a link to an episode about why yoga is problematic and gets into other spiritual realms. But tabling that conversation for today, this is all relevant because we all have our idols of infidelity to God. Ourself, our money, children, car, fear. We can't turn our children into idols. Sex, power our home, education, you name it. Don't compromise. We have to be faithful to what God is calling us to. Literally, adultery is a sin of the body. And this is something that Pope St. John Paul II emphasizes. 
But adultery is also a sin of infidelity to God. And we're called to that faithfulness to him first. Infidelity to ourselves is infidelity to God. He had the original blueprint. We will be happier the more we follow him. How do you prevent adultery? How do you prevent compromise? Know God's commandments. Be intentional with your with your actions. That's why we had this whole conversation earlier about woke-proofing your life, setting yourself apart for God. Have intentional relationships. Have a relationship with God that helps you to be sustained and living out that fidelity to Him. Be humble. You do that by going to confession and starting and ending your day in prayer. And with prayer... This is where we begin and end our day again in fidelity to Christ. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Coming up, I'm taking your questions. Number is 888-914-9149. talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to Trending. Taking your questions, numbers 888-914-9149. I want to share with you a really incredible news report from here at Relevant Radio. We had a woman who was driving this morning, listening to the radio. She was listening to NPR and landed on the Patrick Madrid show for the first time ever. She was five five weeks pregnant with two children and she was overwhelmed. She didn't want to have an abortion, but she was on her way to pick up the abortion pills to start the chemical abortion process. And lo and behold, she ends up listening to Patrick Madrid's show. Patrick talked to her about how abortion is never a solution for women, for babies, for society, never. And at the end, she was completely at peace. She chose not to have an abortion. Let's pray for this woman. This is incredible news. If you ever have a question about your Catholic faith, the Patrick Madrid show is a great place to go here on Relevant Radio. Heard in the mornings, morning drive time if you're on the West Coast, a little later in the morning if you are on the East Coast. Uh, But we'll put a link to that story of this woman because praise God, another baby whose life is saved because you support the work here at Relevant Radio. Because we stand on the truth of what the church teaches about abortion, which stands on sound psychology and what helps make women happy. And it's not abortion. By the way, we have a lot of questions from women today. Maria in Chicago wrote me, she said, I love your show. And I have to say it's brought a lot of clarity to reasons behind the Catholic Church's teaching. She had a question, though, about not scandalizing your priest when you go to confession. She said, I had a priest ask me where acts of impurity occurred. She said it definitely caught me off guard. And she said she could tell he was noticing her shock as well. And it led her to really kind of have some shame around the whole situation and the shame she carried of the sin and making sure she tells the whole truth. She said, on the other hand, she said, you know, she's trying to find the balance here of knowing what's appropriate to share in terms of detail. She's like, can you talk more about this and shed light on how confession should be handled? 
in terms of that ethical side of sharing enough and not too much. So great question, Maria. Uh, summarizing that question there, I think it's important that we are, we've been taught when we go to confession, give number and kind. And if the priest needs more details, I think there's a difference between context and details. I will be frank. I think that, uh, Sometimes there are two perspectives. One, we try to hide and not be completely honest when we go to confession about what we've done. And sometimes uh, a priest can tell and he might ask a clarifying question. And so we need to be able to prudentially respond and be honest and humble in that moment. On the other side, we also have to be careful that there our priests are human as well. And as while they're acting in persona Christi to forgive your sin through the sacrament, the priest could be asking for scandalous details wrongly. And I'm not saying that this is happening, but we have to understand the persona Christi, the priest acting in persona Christi is him forgiving your sin. He can be flawed even in some of his guidance or in some of his questions that he asks. And so I encourage you to have prudential judgment and caution if you're being asked to give details that are explicit. There's a difference between context and explicit scandalizing detail. And we should be very cautious not to give explicit scandalizing detail, but to humbly and honestly confess our sin without holding something back. So I think that's the key distinction here. That was a great question, Maria. Michelle in Las Vegas emailed and she had a question. She said she's 52 years old and she's going through premenopause and it's a little difficult to predict her fertile cycle. That is when she could conceive babies. So she says, do you as a Catholic woman think it's okay to use a condom? She said, my cycles are unpredictable now. And she said they've used for Fertility, um, they've used fertility care and kind of looked at things for a while. Uh, but bottom line is the question is, do you as a Catholic woman think it's okay to use a condom? I love it when people ask questions like this because it's not a matter of what I as a Catholic woman think, but it's a matter of what the Catholic Church teaches. And condoms are a no-go. It's unacceptable because what the Catholic Church teaches is that every act of marital intimacy is meant to be unitive and procreative. So every time spouses engage in conjugal union, there needs to be openness to new life and it needs to be unitive. We need to be totally giving ourselves in these situations and not holding anything back. And so a condom is a barrier, both physically and spiritually in that gift of human sexuality. And so I encourage you to ponder that and also to understand uh, the beauty of sexuality and the gift of new life. We can use things such as natural family planning in a contraceptive way. If there isn't a legitimate reason to avoid a child, God knows what he's doing with when he allows people to be fertile and for the length of time that he allows people to be able to conceive children. And miracles can happen. We need to trust in our Lord. The likelihood of conceiving is much lower, very low if you're premenopausal. Uh, but I have an incredible story and I want to share it. I feel inspired. My sister's best friend growing up, her mom uh, had already was already going through menopause. The father had had a vasectomy years ago and she had a miraculous, miraculous pregnancy in her 50s. Seemingly impossible. God doesn't make mistakes. We can use natural family planning in various means. And again, not the vasectomies or any of that's okay, but I'm just showing how sometimes we do things to prevent the gift of new human life, but God knows what he's doing. We need to trust in him and have that hope and peace. But bottom line, condoms are a no-go because it violates the unitive and procreative dimension 
of the gift of marriage. Okay, so many questions. I know there's another question about Bible studies. We'll answer that question tomorrow, and I have a neat story to share with you. Tomorrow coming up is licensed marriage and family therapist Joe Sakura. Give your relationship, whether you're dating long-term married or in the thick of young children married ask your question with a catholic therapist here on trending tomorrow during our marriage hour up next is a family rosary across america This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Thursday is Ask a Therapist. Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist Joe Sakura will join me and we'll talk about tuning up relationships, whether it's dating, long-time marriages, new marriages. Ask your question. It's not easy to navigate relationships and you have an expert and expert advice for free from a Catholic perspective with sound psychological guidance. So join me Thursday for our weekly marriage hour, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.